welcome to episode 307 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're about to get into, believe it or not, this is the truth, our fifth conversation about soteriology. Oh, yeah. The study of the doctrine of salvation. And this conversation is going to lead us into conversion. I mean, not actually lead you and I into conversion. (laughs) Well, we don't know. But that's where we're headed. So if you're curious about what we're going to talk about there or how even maybe what we'll talk about relates to the prophet Elisha recovering an axe head in Second Kings 6. Oh, man. We're going to talk about it. I don't even there. know how it relates to that, so I'm looking forward uh, to that. <laughs> I know. It's going to be great. But of course, before we do that and get into all that meaty goodness, let's do a little affirmations and denials. And last episode, we went into the denials first and ended on the high notes. And this week, let's just go in the opposite direction because it'll be a little bit more fun. So what are you affirming with on this episode? So I'm affirming the most recent episode of Distilling Theology with uh, James Dalzell. So you should just subscribe to Distilling Theology. It's a good show. It's it's one of the few shows in my overall podcast feed collection that I make sure to listen to every single episode um, along with the other shows in the Society of Reformed Podcasters, but I always make sure to catch the Distilling Theology episodes. But this was like uh like a um like an hour and a half or more of just a straight up download of James Dalazal's brain onto the internet, and it was pretty phenomenal. So go turn your podcast app to one time speed because you're going to need to slow it to regular comprehension speed in order to understand what's going on, and then listen to it two, three, or four times. It was it was just really good. It was it's stunning that it's free. So just go listen to it. It's really great. Um, he really kind of gets into the nitty gritty of some of the issues that are going on in um, evangelical theology or reformed evangelical theology that we've been talking about with EFS and with this sort of classical theism stuff, some of the details behind the normal conversations that are really important that actually explain on a deeper level what's going on. So I'm going to, I'm going to push pause on that for now and I'll come back to it in a few minutes after we do your affirmation. That's a strong affirmation just generally for that Distilling Theology podcast. I think, again, that's another great way to get all kinds of a great Reformed theology into your ear holes on a weekly basis. That's different from our voices, different from any other voices, actually. It's just a really nice blend of different people trying to worship God and understand theology together. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Jesse? What are you affirming today? I think it's possible. So the affirmation is Niles thing. We started this a long time ago. It's taken on a life of its own. And to me, the affirmations and denials thing always has kind of this Genesis 41 kind of paradigm with it. So what I mean by that is, I don't know how you you feel this way, Tony, but it's one of those things where you're either in the lean years or you're in the years of plenty. (laughs) There's either like seven good cows or there's seven really lean cows. And sometimes the lean cows just pop up and just eat all the good cows. It's true. And by that would kind of mean you can go to this place where there's like a dearth of things you'd like to affirm or deny or where there's a great plenty. And for whatever reason, I'm in this space where there's plenty. So I'm just going to drop three really fast oh, man. because 
these are all of like the app genus. And so I just felt like, let's just put them all together. So you're going to get three things in rapid succession and we'll just go from there. The first is really briefly, again, these are all apps or things on the internet that you might find useful. And I'm affirming with all three because I think they are useful and really unique in their own way. The first is um, called something called Base 10. It's a web page. And what it allows you to do, it's actually an app, I guess, as well. But it's the website is, let me see here, just to make sure I get it right. Yeah, it's just like app.base10.co. This is a website or an application that allows you to restore old family photos. It's a, basically an AI engine that only focuses on faces. And it makes like the image appear sharper and the skin smoother. And I've been using this a little bit as I have some old photos I'm scanning in. And just to revitalize them, it's amazing this thing is free. So base 10, you can go check that out. It's really great if you're restoring old photos. Number two, if you have ever had this situation where you have a piece of clothing and you're thinking to yourself, I need to wash this piece of clothing, but maybe it's like semi-fancy or it's made of materials that you're maybe not familiar with. And you think, how do I wash this thing? And you go to the tag as any responsible adult might do. And you see all these cryptic symbols and you think, is this from Lord of the Rings? Is this Elvish? <laughs> I don't understand what exactly it's supposed to do. So here's an app for you. It's on the iPhone only, but why are you not on the iPhone? It's called Laundry Lens. And basically you scan the tag and it interprets all of the cryptic signals or signals, nice. symbols for you and tells you how to wash your thing. So that's number two. Last, number three, another app. Another, actually, this is a website. This I found recently. It's just super cool. It's called Move Map. And basically, if you just go out and search for that, you can, it's movemap.io. It allows you to filter across, I think it's mainly just the US, but it might be around the world. I think it's just the US. Places that you want to live based on all these kind of like filtering criteria. So the price of the house or the state tax burden, how close you want to be to the mountains or the ocean, or whether you want a lot of sun or to avoid tornadoes and wildfires. It even has some demographic information about median age and birth rates, the average grade school test scores versus the national average. It's just actually kind of a fun way, even if you're not looking to move, to see what parts of the U.S. you would would fall into your criteria. So there you go. You got three different options for you, something to smooth out old photos and to restore them with base 10, something to interpret the Elvish symbols on your laundry tags with laundry lens, and then move map, a place to find where you might like to live next. Wow. That's a lot. I, I just figured out how to find this base 10 website while you were talking. Just so everybody knows, it's base 10, B-A-S-E-T-E-N. It's spelled out. And what I did is I took a like a screenshot of Jesse's face on our little web meeting here, <laughs> and I put it in there. And I'm not going to lie, the results are pretty phenomenal. They're pretty amazing. Yes. So I think you have to check it out to really understand how uh, like excellent this actually is. So we, we use Google Meet because Zoom is the worst, and they changed their terms of use, so you can only do like 40-minute meetings. And the resolution, uh, it's probably a combination of it being Google and, and Jesse's webcam, is not super great. But I put it in there, and you can actually see on the the new restored photo, like his individual beard hairs, uh, which is, is pretty <laughs> phenomenal. So it actually created resolution in the photo where there, there was none before. Um, I'm kind of gushing over this. I'm actually, like, super impressed by this website. Yeah. And it's free, and it's a web it's like a web app. So it's a web app. Yeah, I, um, I've shared with the the podcast, my, my mother died in February and I went out in June for the, um, 
for the funeral service and to help clean up the house. And I came home, or I shouldn't say I came home. I mailed home three large box boxes of like old family photos. So I'm gonna try to give it a little shot and see if uh, how it does on this. It probably would be a little bit cumbersome to try to do thousands of family photos with this website. But um, if you have a, like a specific old photo or something like that that you're looking to retouch, this would be really sweet. Again, chalk this up to like, how is this free? We're alive now. This is amazing. Yeah. I wonder what happens if you feed, I'll have to try it later. If you feed the restored photo back in, does it create some sort of high resolution monster? Does the photo come to life? (laughs) Does it, does it become an AI that takes over the internet? It's photo inception. So again, these are, these are just the years of plenty. At some point, those seven lean cows are going to come up and eat all of this stuff. So I think I just throw it all out there now. So let's go into some denials then. Well, so you, it's funny that you mentioned that the affirmations and denials as a segment on the show has, has sort of taken a life of its own because I'm, I'm making an executive decision today and I'm introducing a new category into affirmations and denials and I'm introducing a we distinguish category. Okay. So when Jesse and I first started doing affirmations and denials, it was loosely based on like the way that Turretin answers questions in his institute. Sometimes he affirms as in like, we agree with this. Sometimes he denies as in like, no, this person's wrong. And sometimes he says, we distinguish in that uh, we, we agree, but here's a nuance. So it's, it's very common in reform circles to distinguish, but I'm distinguishing. And this is something I learned on this distilling theology podcast. And it's actually terminology that I kind of had a a framework for, but I didn't have the actual terminology. And the distinction is between uh, something in ratio and that's R-A-T-I-O, and something in re, and that's R-E-S. So when we talk about something in ratio, we're talking about like conceptually distinguishing something. Uh, When we talk about something in re, we're talking about a distinction that's actually within the real object itself. So this is an imperfect example, but think about a triangle, right? In a triangle, we have, there's various ways to define a triangle, but you always are going to have three lines and three angles, and those three interior angles are going to be a total of 180 degrees. However, you can't actually distinguish in ray, in like in the actual object, you can't distinguish between the lines and the angles because you can't have an angle without the lines. The lines are what form the angles. If you take one of the lines away, you no longer have an angle. So the distinction between the angles and the lines in some senses are in ratio, not in ray. And it's an imperfect analogy because a um, another one might be like a, a sphere. Well, you can't distinguish within the sphere between curve and sphere because if you don't have a curve, you don't have a sphere. So that distinction is just in ratio. You're talking about a part of the sphere, even though you can't take that apart. It's irreducible. And the way this cashes out in these most recent conversations is when we're talking about divine simplicity and we're talking about how we we have to talk about God's attributes as though they're plural, as though God's love is something different than his justice, is different than his mercy, is different than his faithfulness, whatever. We have to talk about those things like they're different from each other, but they're not in God actually different from each other. So right. we say that they're distinct in ratio in that in our conception of them, in the way we have to talk and think about them, they're distinct, but they're not actually distinct in ray in the thing itself. So this is a really, really classically important um, distinction. We usually, we've talked about it in terms of calling them notional differences. Their differences just in notion, their, their conceptual differences. But if you want to impress your friends uh, at parties, then just pull out your little impress my friends at party with Latin phrases card 
and uh, talk about something in distinguishing between in ratio versus in re. Yeah, that's always good. It, that's always a crowd pleaser at parties. Yeah. Is to not. drop some really specific nuance Latin. Specific Every, technical Latin terminology. <laughs> Everybody loves that. Maybe that's a really good tool if you're at a party and you would like nobody else to speak with you for the rest you of the go. evening. This also might be wildly <laughs> effective. If you want to curl up in the corner of the book, then you just start dropping Latin terms. <laughs> I'm all about that. Yeah, but I like you bringing this up because I think that is a helpful distinction. There, there's always fun ways to like even have, this is in some ways like a thought experiment, helping us to again, conceive that there might be a different or better or more nuanced way to understand something. And the simplicity, so I've always been surprised that like the the doctrine of, of simplicity with respect to God is always so hotly debated. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it just seems to me, it just kind of baffles me that that is a great debate and that debate rages on. So this is, I think, really helpful way to, again, just kind of have a thought experiment and, and thinking through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way that this specifically plays out is in the conversation with James White, where he's trying to right. say that because, because we think about God's attributes as distinct from each other, that they're not parts. And, and what he does is he pushes his thoughts, his analysis, his way of talking about God. He believes, or he, I don't know if he believes this, but this is the way his, his logic cashes out if you push it out to its, its final kind of state, is that because we talk about the attributes and think about the attributes in God in ratio, because we think about them conceptually as different, that they must therefore be actually distinct from each other in the thing itself, which is God. And this is, like I said, this is a, um, this is a classic Aristotelian category, even with everything I said last week about being cautious with Aquinas. This is just a classic logical category. And you could do this in some senses with a lot of things. Like you could talk about a, a book or a codex. Well, the pages are distinct from each other, which you can't really say that like a book is a, ba- a book if it has no pages. So the, the, the distinction between a page of a book and the book itself is in some sense the same kind of distinction. Again, like our language starts to fail us when we try to grasp for analogies in this because we we can't always have good analogies with God because God doesn't have an analog in creation. But this is just a good common sense. When when you break the logic down of this and you start to understand what's being said, it actually is really intuitive to to think about how sometimes we draw distinctions in our mind. We're gonna talk actually we're gonna talk a little bit about some of this stuff today as we get into some oral salutist stuff. We draw these distinctions in our mind because that's how we have to parse it out in order to understand it. Um, but these distinctions aren't actually real, actual distinctions within whatever it is that's being analyzed. They're conceptual distinctions to help us kind of understand what's going on. Right. And on that theme of like the years of plenty, now I've got more denials I didn't even know I had because of what you're saying here. So <laughs> let me just, let me, I'm going to tag onto that and append that a little bit uh, by saying, I guess I'm going to, I want to deny against this idea that you can, that like we have to compartmentalize everything and that unless it is compartmentalized and discreetly ordered in some way, even though we might understand that there is another world, there is a reality, there's a conception that would be outside of this kind of like temporal ordering in this like clean, again, like discrete chunks of ideas that we can't submit to that. So I'm denying against not submitting to that when something like the page of scripture, which tells us the truth about reality promulgates that very thing, that, that discomfort, that dissonance, which may be part of both our finite human nature and our sinful cognitive biases that not being able to set those aside and then arguing over those things 
that might be the biases just seem to me like utterly fruitless and unnecessary. I think that a lot of times when people are highly intelligent and so many are, God has given us these amazing minds in which to process the world and to worship him and to worship him by understanding him in some capacity and that leading us to a greater doxology that sometimes that intellect can hurt you, I think, because it what it does, it can create this natural resistance to want to submit to the scriptures, not just by way of mystery, but by way of just giving assent to the fact that God is beyond our understanding. We just don't have all of the answers. And besides not having all the answers, we may see things, you know, as through this veil very dimly, but what we, I think sometimes like to do is think that we can remove the veil. Yeah. And then if we explain it enough. So uh, like there's an explanation that comes in that can help us to lean into that faith towards God that he gets to dictate his own being. And therefore we submit in our understanding of what that is. And sometimes that submission is saying, I can only go so far, but I trust him. I just take him at his word. I trust what the scriptures tell me. So I'm, you know, denying against, I guess, getting caught up in some of those things and, and thinking that, uh, we have to not just create all the answers, but that we have to argue through all of them. So, and again, that's not to remove responsibility that is on our part that God gives us to know him and to study his word and to worship him in those two things. But it is to say we have to submit our intellect sometimes. Even the most intelligent among us, we have to submit our intellect to God. Yeah. And in a, a lot of these these sort of like highbrow scholastic distinctions that we sometimes bring into the conversation, when you actually really boil them down, that's precisely what they're supposed to do. Yes. Right. Exactly. So like the, the the classic kind of like poking fun at the scholastics is how many angels can dance on the the head of a pin. Well, that right. question is actually intended to, to ask questions about the interaction between kind of divine space or spiritual space and physical space. Is there an interaction? How's that inter- interaction work? And it can be pushed too far, right? If, if we, I think the actual answer would be an infinite number of angels could dance on the head of a pin because there's no, there's no space on a, you know, angels don't occupy space in the same way we physical right. beings do. But a lot of these distinctions, like this distinction between uh, the in ratio and the in re in reference to God, they're there to say like, we can never get to the in re. We can exactly. never get to what actually is, is properly, truly, analytically, really actual in God. We, we cannot... Not because God is not not revealing himself sufficiently, not because our intellect is somehow corrupt and damaged, right? That's sort of the Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox model is a human intellect can't can't comprehend this because of its corruption and whatnot. It's it's really more just because it's a recognition that we are not we're not the creator. We're creatures, and us creatures can't rise to the level of the creator to know right. God as he knows himself. So we make some of these kinds of philosophical distinctions so that we can still meaningfully talk about God, but not pretend to talk about God as though we are on equal footing with him in terms of knowledge or or you know, descriptive capacities or any of those things. These distinctions may seem like they're actually us elevating our intellect, but in a lot of ways, they're us actually kind of tamping down our intellect and putting some boundaries on it. So I think that's a great reminder for all of us, especially those of us who are theologically minded, that it's not just about submitting to the scriptures, which is, of course, is is paramount for the theologian. Our theology right. has to has to come from scripture and, and in certain senses comes from general revelation, but has to be bounded by and constrained by and corrected and verified by the scriptures. But also we just have to submit to our limitations and our creatureliness because we're not God and we're never going to be. Right. That and that was that's really the heart of my denial is that 
I think all great learning, all godly learning, and that's not just about God himself or the scriptures, but about all things that we might endeavor to understand. All good godly learning, even as we get the terms in our minds and we bring them to a place where we can use them and apply them in our lives as we're speaking, articulating, or enumerating the thing that we've learned, all good godly learning should lead us to greater humility. And there should be a place where it says to us, we use these concepts because these concepts actually lead us into greater worship because we recognize the finitude of our knowledge. Not that because we know these great concepts that now we have some kind of you know, exponential knowledge greater than my neighbor because I know these things. It's oh, Again, I, everything that I've ever learned at any topic, the more I learn, the more I think, I know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually have to come to believe that that's exactly the way that God endeavors it for us, that with great learning, even Solomon himself said, right, with great learning comes great vexation. And that vexation is both, I think, this idea that learning brings a greater depth of understanding, which oftentimes lead us is, leads us into greater compassion and empathy for the thing that we're trying to process. But also above and beyond that, it just leads us to understand that behind this one thing are 10 other things. And then behind that 10 other things. And not only is it just impossible to know all those things, but it's really possible to command them all in a way that would be meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't got anything to add to that. That's just, yeah, that's well, I mean, just that, good. That silence is our segue. Mm-hmm. Let the silence, silence be our, is our segue. segue. I like that. I like that. Just a quick update. I've been feeding this photo back into base 10 several <laughs> times, and I think I'm close close to, to the singularity of creating artificial intelligence. Uh, it becomes it begins to look more and more like a like an anime character as you go along. So I should that, I should make a awesome. series of these um, a series of these to post on the website to show you how this goes. So. That's awesome. I love that that was happening all the while <laughs> affirmation styles were taking place. It's true. It's true. I can multitask sometimes. Yeah, this is great. This is as close to like real time podcast listening as one could get. Yeah, it's true. It's what true. What more could you ask for? It's This is worth the price of admission. And that's because you paid zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's true. I guess maybe you could ask for like sound effects or something or I don't know, preparation. I don't know. Yeah, you could, you could ask for all those things. You will not find <laughs> them on this podcast. You want to go to distilling theology. Yes, That's where you true. want to go. It's true. I they mean, have it, some wicked awesome glassware too that you can get. So Yes. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yeah. Well, speaking of I guess converting to a different topic. <laughs> it just I had to it. be done. It's true. So l- here's a word, right? Here is a word in modern evangelicalism that has all kinds of connotations. So this, I think, is going to be a really great discussion because it's not just about, well, what does this word mean in the Reformed tradition, but how do we ought to understand it? And let me just say, like, right at the top of the conversation here, that in case anybody's keeping track at home, the word conversion actually only appears once in the New Testament. It's in Acts 15. Um, There are several different words used for converts, but that word itself only appears in one place very explicitly. And this is a word that I just see everywhere. Like, is yeah. is there another word in modern evangelicalism that is oft used but oft understood than conversion? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think this is a lot of times we sort of marvel at the fact that certain words get so used so frequently that we almost forget what they mean. Or, right. or more likely, I think actually we never really knew what they meant in the first place. Right. So our... our Post Billy Graham, post um, you know Crusades, revivalism, our experience is so wrapped up in 
a particular understanding and a particular model of what conversion looks like that, you know, we think of like the gangbanger who murdered a bunch of people and then he, you know, he found a, a Bible in the last guy he shot's pocket and he read John three sixteen and came to faith and like, hasn't, hasn't said a swear word since like, that's our, that's our model of conversion because that's a, a lot of the times like the conferences acquire the fire type conferences we went to right. when we were in youth group. Those are the stories we heard, and those are the examples that were elevated to us. But conversion is something that happens to every Christian, right? Every Christian is converted from one one state to another, from one kingdom to another. There's a number of, um, they're not really metaphors. There's a number of explanations in the scripture of what's happening when someone goes from pre-Christ to post-Christ that it's all wrapped up in conversion. And for me, I think one of the most classic texts that you go to is actually in 2 Corinthians. And it is, um, I'm going to start reading here. Oh, my Logos just freaked out on me because I clicked the button a bunch of times, not because Logos <laughs> is bad. Um, Good save. Yeah, really so I'm going to start save. reading. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. And it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting right. to us this message of reconciliation. So you see there in verse 17 that, before Christ, we were one thing, and now in Christ, we have become a new thing. The old has passed away, the new has come. Um, you could go to the beginning of Colossians, where it says, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's all these different statements in the Bible that talk about how before Christ, right, uh, Ephesians 2, you once walked in, in your, in dead, you were dead in your sins, walked in the disobedience. Um, slaves to the prince of the power of the air, all these different things it says, but God, rich in mercy, brought you out of that, right? There's all these spots in scripture where you see this sort of turnover from being before Christ to after Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what, what is that turnover? What happens theologically in that turnover? I'm doing this thing with my hand where I'm like flipping things over. You guys can't see this, but what happens in that mo in that moment in time, right? There's a point in time where that transfer happens. And we're going to get into a little bit of uh, Ordo Salutis type stuff. We're going to talk a little bit of distinctions between justification and repentance. We're going to get to all of that, but that's, that's where we're going today. And here once again is a place where the Bible is replete with economic transactional language. Mm -hmm. And that's true of conversion. I think that maybe it's helpful sometimes when we get challenged with a word, like you said, that becomes commonplace, maybe a little bit rote. It's good to think of like what it actually means in respect to the way it's being used in the scriptures. So here, when you find this, this idea, and again, because we know conversion is used in really a very small sample of expressions in the scriptures, the idea that's being promulgated here is like you said, one of change and it's actually an economic change. So like for me, when I think of conversion, I think of currency exchange right. because you're literally changing one currency into something else. There is like a complete more than just a modification, a complete transformation of that thing. So to be converted as a Christian is really to be changed. It's almost, we should say it that way, it's better. 
It's to be changed your thinking and your believing about Jesus Christ, to be changed into a person who's no longer an enemy of God, but a beloved child of God. And once I think you start thinking about this idea that it is a change, then it opens up the conversation in a slightly different way to be asking, well, what is that change? Who is changing? What is the impetus or the genesis or the force which results in that change? All of these questions, I think, are better connected to this idea of conversion as understanding it, as you said, as a change. Yeah. And one of the things that's tricky about talking about conversion, I think we've been fairly clear and fairly consistent uh, on our view of lordship lordship salvation, in that lordship salvation is a misunderstanding of the definition of faith, and that misunderstanding brings repentance into the means of justification rather than a outcome of sanctification. That That's the fundamental problem with Lordship salvation. But one of the things that comes up when you're having that debate is what, how does this affect conversion, right? Because traditionally we understand conversion as faith plus repentance, right? So if you, you, you have, you trust in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, you, you turn to Jesus in faith and you turn away from your sins toward Jesus in repentance well, those things seem to be one and the same thing. You often hear them talked about as two sides of the same coin. And we don't necessarily need to we need to fight against that too hard, but we still need to distinguish those two things. And that's where it gets tricky. But the hard part is that conversion, it falls within the ordo salutis in that like there's a progress, there's a process of things, right? There's just faith and then justification and then you know conversion is is in that process somewhere. But it, it's not precisely in the Ordo Salutis in the same sense, because the Ordo Salutis, which is just Latin, another one of those party Latin terms, the Ordo Salutis is just a Latin phrase to me, like the order of salvation. And what we're talking about when we talk about the Ordo Salutis is the logical ordering of things. We've mentioned before, the, the, all of the things that happen in the Ordo Salutis, for the most part, are all happening at the same time in in the temporal frame. Your, you... Um, you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore are justified at the exact same moment. There's never a moment where you have faith in Jesus Christ that you are not justified, not positionally or definitively sanctified. Um, regeneration is the creation of faith, so regeneration, justification, sanctification, uh, all of those happen at the same moment in time. But in order to talk about them, right, these are those notional differences that we're talking about, you have to sort of chop those up and put them in an order. Regeneration is the creation of faith, so therefore trusting in faith, trusting in Christ has to come after regeneration, right? That's the classic distinction between Reformed theology and Armenian theology, or even sometimes Lutheran theology in some right. senses, right? That faith faith follows um, faith follows regeneration, and then faith necessarily comes before justification, even though temporally they're at the same time. Conversion is kind of the confluence of all of those different things. So here's a here's the um, the, the Heidelberg Catechism question eighty eight. In how many parts does the true conversion of man consist? The answer is in two parts, the mortification of the old and in the quickening of the new man. And then it goes on to say, what is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. Well, that that sounds like something that can only happen in the person who's already regenerate. Exactly. Right? It sounds like something that can only happen in that, that. That's a part of sanctification, that we more and more flee from our sins. Well, that's true. And and that's why these dis, this distinction between in ratio, right, in our reasoning, faith, repentance, justification come in a particular order, 
and they all happen in that order logically for every person. They have to. They, they, by necessity, they always happen in the same sequence. But in Ray, in the actual thing itself, in the actual conversion, all of these things bubble together and they happen at the same time. And it's kind of like right. a jambalaya of different elements of the Ordo Salutis, right? We're, we're turning from our sin. We're being convicted of our sin. We're learning to hate our sin. We're disgusted by our sin. At the same exact time that we're turning towards Jesus, we're learning to love Jesus, we are, are loving Jesus, all of this happens at the same time. And so conversion has to be understood in that frame of reference, that we can't necessarily just plop conversion down in the Ordo Salutis. And if you look at different people's charts, or the Ordo Salutis is like the one place that the Reformed have better charts than dispensationalists, is the Ordo Salutis. <laughs> if you look at different Ordo Salutis charts, conversion is the part that moves around the most. Right, right, and that's partly, mostly because it's hard to figure out where to slot it in there. Right? Is it right after justification? Well, if it is, then you have sanctification on the other side of conversion. Well, then that means that there's this logical moment in time where you are a new creature in Christ, but you still have not been set apart for Christ's service, and you still have not been made holy. So, so that newness in creation is now dis or in recreation is now disconnected from sanctification. Right. But in a certain sense, in a very real sense, that sanctification is actually the newness of the new creation. So we have to understand this in that context. And this is one of those parts of the Oral Salutis that we have to have a big heaping dose of grace for people who disagree with us on where this falls in and exactly right. how it fits out, because it is so hard to sort of slot it into a nice, neat spot in the Ordo, or even, even in, um, I think I've shared this before, even in like our experience of salvation. Right? We say that this happens all at the same time, but there are elements of the process of coming to Christ, the process of going from the old, the old passing away and the new coming that are not always so cut and clear. Right? There, was a, there was a fairly long period of time from the first moment that I recall being disgusted with my sins. I remember it really distinctly. Right, I was at a pool party. I was 15 years old, and I was looking at a girl and I was doing what 15-year-old girls, 15-year-old guys do when they look at girls at pool parties, right? I was lusting after this girl and I was disgusted by it. And it was this brand new feeling for me. I had no idea what to do with it. It was like seven months later that I confessed Christ and came to faith. So, so there's sometimes feels like there's these temporal gaps that we don't always know what to account for, but we have to be fair and I think gracious with our brothers and sisters in Christ who may have a differing understanding of this because it is so like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of unclear sometimes. Do you, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? It feels like it's unclear sometimes where conversion even happens. Yeah, for sure. I think this, this idea in some ways, like the conversion is like the summary it's on balances and the final analysis, how we describe all of these things together. But when you try to like slide it in, like shoehorn it into an yeah. order, it's almost like you can't be wrong if you're getting the elements right. Right. In terms of like everything that is reflected in conversion. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, listeners will know that uh, some of our, our episodes like this one in the past have been sponsored by, you know, places like or things like Locus Bible Software. This episode is apparently also sponsored by the dead language Latin because <laughs> I've got some more Latin coming nice. out, everybody. So I was thinking about this and just, you know, processing this in light of what you were talking about. 
it, it strikes me that, you know, a lot of like the kind of like first century, like older theologians, they spoke about conversion or conversio in Latin as both passive and active. And there is that famous term for passive conversion, cons, you know, conversio passiva. And that this idea of it, it's referring to kind of like what we're saying, the, ha- the habit or disposition implanted by God to repent and to believe in Christ as Savior. And then there's this other side, which I think they appropriately denoted, as you were kind of saying, this active conversion, conversio activa. And that's like the actual turning of the sinner in repentance and faith in Christ. The problem is, at least in my estimation, is that active conversion or like the actual turning of the sinner to Christ is often just simply termed conversion without any additional qualifications. And that's really the problem. So like if you were to look again to kind of this maybe modern evangelical definition of conversion or like trying to articulate what conversion is because it can be the kind of thing that suits and fits into the order salutis in various ways, but I think still proper expression, what you'll end up with is like something that divorces from that where it's kind of this turning to God under any circumstances. It's like psychologically guarded. It's man's own act, deliberately considered, freely chosen and spontaneously performed. But the Bible makes it clear that it is also in a more fundamental sense, God's work in him. And the way that I always think about yeah. it, just like you've described is the Bible says that sinners turn to God only when they themselves are turned by God. And that is right at the root. So if you're getting that root right, I think you can kind of fit in, so to speak, or plant into the garden of Ordo Salutis conversion almost anywhere you want, as long as it's in that soil where the Bible is saying that sinners turn to God only when they themselves are turned by God. So this idea of, you know, of like people sometimes bring up with me, well, if you look in Acts, you'll find, you know, like the the jailer or the soldier saying, what must we do to be saved? And I say, well, that's a great question, isn't it? Like we, sh- we all should be asking that question. But what I think is behind it is who prompted them to ask that question. Right. Are they doing that on their own and they're seeking after conversion? And this really like, again, fundamentally, psychologically, deliberately oriented, freely chosen, spontaneously performed kind of way, or is that God himself coming in and pre... So, when, if you would ask where are they converted in that process, you might be able to like shoehorn that into a couple different places in like this kind of like overtly, discreetly logical type of order. But what remains is that the initial conversion of unbelievers to God is the result of this divine work in them by which our very nature could play no part since it is essentially a curing, I'll say it this way, it's kind of maybe inflammatory, and essentially a curing of spiritual impotence. Yeah. which has precluded our turning to God up to that point. It's a raising from death. It's a new birth. It's an opening of the heart an opening and a lightning of blinded eyes. And it is because of that, like a literal new creation, not like new figuratively. I, I think that's what you're driving at in like second Corinthians five there. Not this new yeah. sense where like we've been rehabilitated, but that is like loved ones, like the essence of regeneration Yeah, that you have become something fundamentally different, something definitely new. And that itself is like kind of the, the finality, so to speak of rendering the stamp converted. Yeah. Yeah. So just before I forget, um, speaking of this episode being sponsored by Latin and also Logos Bible software, (laughs) we, uh, we do want to make sure that we recommend some great resources to you. If you have a desire to learn Latin, for example, and you have a desire to have the best Bible study software that is uh, produced by anyone, uh, then you could 
get the fundamentals base package of Logos for $50. And you could purchase Zonderfan's Basic of Latin, a grammatical or a grammar with readings and exercises. Uh, so Zondervan makes these different basics uh, language books. So most people who have gone through seminary have used Mounts Basics of Biblical Greek. You probably have used Basics of Biblical Hebrew. There's a Basics of Aramaic, and uh, I think there's a Basics of, of like Ugaritic. There's lots of Basics series. I don't know how you get Basic with Ugaritic, but they do have Basics <laughs> of Latin uh, available, and you can buy both of the the workbook and then also the the uh, video lectures if you would prefer to do the lectures along with them. So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash logos if you're interested in buying one of their base packages with all sorts of awesome resources. Or if you're looking to just sort of get in on the ground floor, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals and you could get the fundamentals package right now for $50, which is half off. Um, and then you can add books as you see fit. If you don't want to learn Latin, then don't buy this Latin book. If you want to learn Latin, then buy this Latin book. Um, but you can get all sorts of really good stuff. You could get you could get the Summa Theologica by Aquinas. You could get uh, The Same God Who Works All Things by Adonis Vidu. Basically, every major book published by one of the big academic publishers is going to end up on Logos uh, pretty quick. So check it out, reformbrother.com slash Logos. And now, back to the show. I don't know how we transition <laughs> back great. to that. And now, back to the show. That was a stunning advertisement, especially the part that I think we could summarize as get Logos Bible software and then do whatever you want. Right, exactly. Do whatever you want. That's the beauty of it. You can literally just build whatever you want into the software. You could just put, you can put your own books in there. You can write your own books and import them into Logos if you want. Uh, but you're, you're right about all of this. The, the conversion of the sinner is fundamentally a supernatural act on God's part. Yes. Right. And, and this is why it gets to be so frustrating to me when we are running into people who want to act, sometimes act like conversion is a very natural thing, right? This is, this is Finneyism. This is in some senses, the problem we, we kind of sort of take these veiled, we cast shade on like Billy Graham once in a while. And, and right. Billy Graham seems like he was a, a faithful saint who loved Jesus and just wanted to see people come to faith. Um, and we have serious, serious disagreements with his methodology in a lot of ways and, and the way that he did that. And, uh, and that's because that movement, that sort of like Billy Graham crusade movement rooted in Finney, Charles Finneyism really does treat conversion like it's a predictable natural phenomenon, right? You get people, you convince people of the right things, you overcome the right objections, you hit the right musical note at the right moment, right? You can look at like um, Stephen Furtick, who when they do baptisms, and they, or they do an altar call, they have people planted in the audience who will stand up and walk like they're going to get baptized or like they're going to come down to the altar at the right moment to sort of like prime the crowd. That is not true conversionism, right? When we talk about conversion, we're talking about a secret supernatural act of the Holy Spirit in taking away what was and bringing about the new in a way that only the Holy Spirit can. Now that maps out and has real world implications, right? I think most people can point to a before and an after in their in their faith. I think even most people who were raised in the church can point in some sense to a before and an after. Sometimes that's more along the lines of like, well, I was always raised in the church. I, I love Jesus right. as long as I can remember. But there was a point where I really, I really like it became real to me, right? It came home to nest for me. I don't know whether that's their conversion or not. And and that's the the tricky thing about conversion. A lot of times we don't even know when that's, you know, what when our conversion happened. 
um, which is a distinction from some of this Finneyism stuff where like, if you don't know the day and hour and moment and what song was playing and, and where you were positioned on the floor of the stadium when the, you know, when Billy Graham started singing just as I am, like, if you don't know that, then you weren't really converted. But in reality, most people have some sort of fuzziness to when their conversion happened. You might know the day, you might know a rough time, but even then, you know, you can't necessarily pinpoint when it is the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit does. That's not always true. Some people have a really, really distinct moment that they believe is when their conversion happened. But the the emphasis in biblical Reformed theology, when we're talking about conversion, is in this secret supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. So, we, you know, in the past couple episodes, before we talked about what faith is, we talked about the outward call and the inward call and how God joins those things together. Well, that inward call is the prerogative of the Holy Spirit, right? right. A person can hear the same gospel message over and over and over and over again, and then for whatever reason, and probably for reasons they don't fully understand, this time it sits, this time it lands, right? You think of like Charles Spurgeon, his father was a pastor and he heard the gospel day in and day out. He was raised in the church and it wasn't until he was walking, he was walking through the snow and he took shelter in this primitive Methodist chapel. The pastor couldn't even get to this, the church service. So it was just this lay elder re, literally just reading from the Bible up front and Spurgeon walks in at just the right time, hears the gospel presented from the scripture and becomes that and points to that as his conversion. Or, or you have people who were raised in the church their entire life, and they can't point at a moment. They just always loved Jesus. And yeah, there's, they can point to sort of like a general before and after, but they don't know when that happened. Both of those things, I think, are valid conversion experiences. And I think we do well in the church, especially for people who were raised in the church, and then especially for people who had dramatic conversion experiences, we do well to remember that neither one of those is necessarily good or bad or better or worse. Right. It's just the Spirit works the way the Spirit wants to work when He wants to work, and we shouldn't try too hard to pigeonhole that into a specific framework or, or pattern. I totally agree. Conversion is a bit like vocation. We have this sense in our finitude to want to stack rank, to create a hierarchy, both yeah. by way of like magnitude or experience or degree. And it's unnecessary and unbiblical. So we talk, and this is one of the great things that came out of the Reformation, this idea that there is no higher or lower work. There is only God's work and that he's great enough that all the work that we do, if he's called us to it, should give him glory and should be of equal value. In the same way, like you're saying, there is this idea that because we speak, again, in these weird colloquial terms, right? Like, what's your conversion story? Tell me how you were converted. And there's both a weird emphasis on the person yeah. and then also a weird emphasis on some kind of contrived experience that if there's a great weight in that experience, it somehow lends credence to the conversion itself. What I liked that you said was the very thing. I thought you were going to steal my Elisha axe head thing because here yeah. you, you, you came right into it. This idea that conversion of a soul is by far the most remarkable event in the history of the world. Yeah. And I think the problem is that most people don't see it that way. They don't care about it that way. And they think that again, it's more about story or impact or circumstance. It's not those things. If you have been the pleasure to grow up in a Christian home where all you've taught is the Bible and in a kind of seamless, iterative, very incremental way, you came to know the Lord such that all of your life, you cannot imagine living without the knowledge of who God is. That is equally a miracle because when God saves a soul, when he comes in and defeats the internal enemy and makes 
who the person who was once at enmity with him, one who is his friend. That is a miracle. It's the object of fact that like attracts the eyes of holy angels where they want to look into this process. It's the object of God's eyes resting upon his children with tenderness and delight. It's this work of the soul that brings greater glory to the father, the son and the Holy spirit, all of which are at work in his children to bring about this great conversion. And so that's why I say, I was thinking recently that this is a lot like Elisha recovering this axe head, which you can find if you want to go hang out in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. If you're not familiar, basically what happens is Elisha is a prophet of God and he's hanging out with these sons of God and they want to embark on this building project. So they say, let's go down to the Jordan River and let's each of us there get a log and we're going to make a place for us to dwell. And so he, the scripture says, Elisha was just like, go, one word, go, do it go and do what you want. So they go down there and they're working and maybe other people have had this experience. I know I certainly have. Somebody is working. I mean, not this exact thing, but somebody's working with a tool <laughs> that doesn't belong to them. They borrowed it from somebody else and it's an ax. And at some point the ax head falls into the water. And I love this. It seems like such like an understatement. It says the son of God cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. I mean, you can yeah. imagine the panic, right? Like you're using somebody else's car and somebody backs into you or you're, I don't know, using somebody else's pen and you lose it or you break using somebody else's chainsaw and it breaks. And so this idea of like this, this sheer panic and what happens, the man of God says, you know, where did it fall? And they show him the place, the man of God, Elisha cuts off a stick. He throws it into the water and the iron head floats. And he says, take it up. This is a miracle. We'd all just say yeah. like, this is a miracle. There, there's no doubt about it. And miracles always follow this pattern in the scriptures. That is, there's a word spoken. There is the means and there's the divine intervention. This is salvation. That is conversion. And just like in this place, I think all that we have in this text in 2 Kings 6 is something that we don't need to like read into or overly dramatize or spiritualize. I think here we have God's kindness in employing a miracle for somebody who really desperately needed it. Yeah. And that is exactly what conversion is. It is the fact, the goodness and the kindness of God to come and do the very work within us that we could not fabricate or make on our own, that we lack the psychological ability to understand or to put forth the good faith effort. We could not come with just our hands held high or empty before him. It's all because of God's great mercy. And it is a miracle and it follows the same pattern. There's a word spoken. There is the means. And again, we're talking about ordinary means, like in this case, uh, a stick is thrown into the river. And then there is the divine interaction, the, the divine will coming to bear and to bring about something that is truly miraculous. So conversion in every way is like, we make it too trite. We make it this thing that's kind of like the side story or like, you know, if you've ever been in, a, in any kind of small group, people are talking about the way in which God arrested them in their lives. And there are people who might feel timid because somebody has gone before them, like you said, and has given like this great dramatic telling or tale. That also is great, but either way, it's just a miracle and miracles are always amazing. So like, it's just a miracle. So yeah. can we just start there and say that any conversion and every conversion is a miracle? Yeah. And you know, it's funny because I've never, um, I've never associated that account with conversion. So that's an interesting connection. I'll have to think more about, but what, what it makes me think of is if you have ever heard somebody try to explain some of these miracles using naturalistic means. Right. So the most common right. classic example is there's this really tortured explanation for how all of the 10 plagues of, um, of Egypt in the Exodus account, how all of those are nat could be naturalistic. And it's really funny. Don't watch this movie. It's terrible. And it's full of second commandment violations. But if you remember Christian Bale did this, um, Exodus movie, I think it was called gods and Kings or something. 
And I went and saw it when it was in the theater. It was before I really had convictions about the second commandment. And the the plagues, the 10 plagues start with the lesser known plague of the crocodiles. <laughs> and what it is, is these crocodiles <laughs> just attack a bunch of people. And that's why the water turns to blood. And then all the <laughs> fish die. And so that's the plague of the blood. And then the fish die, causes a bunch of gnats. Oh, the, the frogs all come out of the Nile because it's blood now. So like it's this naturalistic sequence of events, which is really weird in the story because... It's very like God is very clearly real and causing these things. So I don't know why they went that direction, but they actually even kind of make fun of this naturalistic explanation. The one of Pharaoh's advisors is trying to explain the natural mechanisms. That very much is how dumb it sounds when people try to explain conversion in natural terms, right? It would be like, and I've seen people try to do it. I've seen atheists try to explain it. I don't know why they would try to explain it, but they try to explain this axe head floating in naturalistic terms. And I've also seen well-meaning Christians try to explain it to be like, see, it's not really that unbelievable. Somehow like you throw the <laughs> stick in the water and it changes the pH balance of the water, right, which changes, right. the, changes the density of the water. And that makes like, it, it's, that's just dumb. Like, it, I don't care what you do. You're gonna have to be doing some like quantum physics, quantum physics experiment to somehow change the water sufficiently to make an axe head not dense enough that it in a giant river, surface. right? You, you'd have to like you'd have to be, it would be on the order of a miracle, right? It would yes, be like a exactly. naturalistic miracle. Um, it would defy explanation, and that's exactly what we're saying about conversion: is it defies naturalistic explanation. We can talk about people who do in a natural sense convert to Christianity kind of in quotation marks and then they f- they flake out and they leave Christianity. Well, that's how we know that that conversion wasn't genuine because there was no genuine secret inner working of the Holy Spirit and we know that to be the case because when the Holy Spirit does something in the life of a believer, that thing is permanent. So so right. we're not talking about we're not talking about um a change of clothes, right? We're not talking about something that's just external. We're talking about I mean if we look at the language we started here with we're talking about the old has passed away. Something dies and something new comes to life. Mm-hmm. This is more dramatic than a caterpillar entering a entering a cocoon and coming out as a butterfly. Although that's pretty dramatic. I mean, that's a pretty significant change and there's no going back. So it's not a terrible analogy. We're talking about being taken from one kingdom and transferred to another. Right. right. So the language that the scripture uses is not this loose sense of vague change. Right. It's not a renewal. It's not it's not the old is still here, but maybe it's a little shinier. It's a dramatic movement from old to new. Now there's a continuity, we affirm that. There's not it's not like this total, total break in reality, but it is a decisive change from one thing to another. And if you take nothing else away from this episode, that decisive change is wrought by the Holy Spirit and it defies naturalistic explanations. You can't talk. There used to be this old adage that was really popular in in certain circles of you. I, you can't talk me out of it because I wasn't talked into it. Well, that's true in a certain sense. Like that. That's that's a, one of those truisms that uh, almost is is almost accidentally right. Right. They're not talking about. Um, they're not talking about the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit when they say that. They're talking about sort of this like base fideism. Like I wasn't talked into this. It's about faith. It's about trust. But. A person who's genuinely converted by the Holy Spirit because they were elected by the Father and redeemed by the Son, that person miraculously is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And that king will not lose any who are his. So conversion, although it is this sort of like ethereal, 
sort of moving variable that happens in the ordo salutis and it gets placed in different spots and we can't always pin it down. It still is this decisive event in the life of every Christian uh, that is in many ways like the birth of the Christian. And it's important for us as we think about the rest of soteriology, we have a few more soteriology episodes coming up. It's important for us to remember that that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we talk about the Christian life starting is when the Holy Spirit makes a new creature by killing the old creature, killing the old creature. I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. That's, that's conversion, right? I was nailed to a cross and killed. And now I've been raised to new life in Christ Jesus, who is my salvation, who is my strength, who is my savior. That's conversion. And it's not natural. It's not explainable by natural means. And we have to grapple with the fact that it it's it's mysterious in a way that other elements of the Ordo Salutis don't always feel as mysterious. Right. And we had, to your point, no natural hope. There were no natural means that right. could correct this imbalance. There was not only what we owed to God, and there was also the cosmic treason, to, to quote uh, R.C. Sproul, that we had committed against him. But there was no suitable, there was found in all the world, no suitable way to make amends for that. In fact, of right. course, the Old Testament sacrificial system is that shadow pointing toward the one who would come and as it were, put their arms around the shoulders of both God and man. So as to bring true unity and relationship back into order, the garden-like state. And so we needed not what was natural, but something that was supernatural, above and beyond what was natural, yeah. that, what was transcendent. And so I'm with you because this must inform all the future conversations. Hopefully people will hearken back to this as they hear that, because when we talk about adoption, we talk about being brought and wrought into the family of God, for instance, and all the accoutrements and the blessings, being receiving all the spiritual blessings in Christ, that the change that happens where you are literally literally by the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, all of the punishment that was due you, again, has not only, we talked about double imitation, not only has it been taken away from you, but you've been giving all the blessings. That's because you have been changed in Christ. So all these New Testament writers harping on that single preposition, not with Christ, not alongside Christ, not generally in a company with Christ, but in Christ, that is a change like that is a fundamental from the ground up redefinition. Like it's just completely altogether different. And that's why you're in Christ and of course not with Christ. So right. I think again, it's, it's helpful to think about things being changed and that when we talk about conversion, we're talking about like a massive fundamental change. I, I feel like there is within this, like somewhere a really good, Marvel metaphor that I'm just not qualified to pick out. So I'm going to instead go with something that I I do often that's on my counter. And that is like by God's grace and because of his great creation, talk about change. God does this thing where if you leave things for a long enough part of time, they will become alcohol and it's amazing. So if you think about again, beer or wine or what I have my counter right now, like sauerkraut or pickles, when I eat the pickle, I know at the same time that is it cucumber but nobody would pick that up and eat it and say, this is a cucumber. They say it's a pickle. <laughs> and so it retains, like we do, our essential human nature, but we've now become the perfect human in the same way that the cucumber has become the perfect pickle because a pickle is way more delicious <laughs> and better than a cucumber. And so like, it's not as if like we're saying when you're changed in Christ, when you become in Christ, that you cease to be like the person that God created you to be. Like your personality is somehow like, 
just kind of like amalgamated and dissolved into some kind of like generalist. Like C.S. Lewis has written a lot against that idea. And I think it's, it's very good reading. It's instead this idea that God is reconciling us to himself. And in so doing, we are becoming, uh, though we are not perfect in this life, the very people, the very human beings we were supposed to be from the beginning. That change is no less real, even though, of course, we have who we, we are still who we are in the sense that uh, God has created us and knit us together perfectly in this kind of, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made way. And yet, we are at such enmity and distance from him that it required this kind of amazing penalty. It acquired this amazing cost. And in paying that cost, he exchanged one currency for the other in your life and made all of us who are his children, those now reconciled to himself, who can call him friend, who can refer to him as Abba Father. And that's because we were in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is if you've actually been fundamentally changed. There is no yeah. other way. Yeah. It's a good word. I like the pickle analogy. I'm I'm getting hungry. I'm just saying, have you ever, you can, again, you can just throw pickles in a jar with some, you know, like salt solution and they become pickled and amazing, but like they're different, right? Like that, I, that's a metaphor I return to in my own thought process because it yeah. doesn't remove, you know, essentially who God has made us, but it, it does remove a lot of, it removes sin. It removes our, it changes our status. It makes us adopted into the pickle family. I don't know how else to say it. Like it, it is a fundamental change, but uh, even that metaphor breaks down because of course what you've said is this is dramatic. It's like, it is a miracle. So it's a miracle level. So if you have been converted because God, you have been turned to God and therefore have turned towards God that like you, we just ought to get on our knees every day and thank him. And maybe we ought to do that. That should be the starting point of all of our prayers. So it's to me again, to like have been present and to like be the dude that lost the ax head and be like, I borrowed that thing. Like I can't go to like Lowe's or Home Depot and replace that. Like it's like an iron ax head. Like I can't do that. Like to be in that panic and then to be rescued and to be saved in a way that you just look at and you're like, what? Like, can you imagine those dudes? They're probably just like, what just happened yeah. here? Yeah. And and that's what we ought to say about our lives. Like, again, last thing I'll say is I know a lot of people have had dramatic conversion stories. We use that in quotation marks. And those are fantastic. I feel like in many ways, I've had the, the blessing, of course, of growing up in this Christian household and have known nothing but the loving parents who have constantly instilled the truth of the world into us by way of the scriptures. And so in many ways, even at 42, I still feel like I am recovering from my own conversion because yeah. it is a miracle that I'm, I'm constantly trying to understand. And it's one that leads me to greater humility and a place where I at least even figuratively find myself just constantly on my knees because I want to say, just like I assume the sons of God did in front of Elisha, what happened here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. And I think it's time for us to convert this episode to being finished. Oh, <laughs> but um, uh, but um, nice. So, uh, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood. <laughs>